for October 21st, 2015. This is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can yeah. still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. Again, don't know where, don't know when, but I know we'll meet again some sunny day. Welcome to the Energy Transition Show. I'm your host, Chris Nelder. Today's topic is winning the carbon war, and we'll be speaking with Dr. Jeremy Leggett, who began his career as an award-winning earth scientist with the Royal School of Mines, researching oil and gas deposits with funding from BP and Shell, then joined Greenpeace, then founded a solar company called Solar Century in 1998, and then founded a charity called SolarAid that deploys solar lanterns in Africa. He is the author of four books on energy transition, The Carbon War, Half Gone, Oil, Gas, Hot Air, and the Global Energy Crisis, the Solar Century, and the Energy of Nations. His fifth book, The Winning of the Carbon War, is currently being released as a serial and is downloadable for free from his website, which we'll link to in the show notes. Billed as a chronological log of events in global energy, climate change, and related issues, The Winning of the Carbon War is Leggett's personal frontline account of the ongoing civil war between renewables and fossil fuels and of the climate change negotiations leading up to the COP21 climate summit in Paris this coming December. It's riveting reading. He's also the chair of Carbon Tracker, a London-based organization that has published numerous reports alerting investors in the fossil fuel sector to the risks of unburnable carbon and stranded assets in a time of energy transition. He's an amazing human being and a friend, and I'm very pleased to have him on the show. So let's bring Jeremy into the conversation. Welcome, Jeremy, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks, Chris. You've had a front row seat in the global campaign for energy transition longer than most, I mean, since the 1970s, and you offer a remarkably personal account of recent developments in your new book. You've obviously been committed to the energy transition effort for a very long time, but when did you begin to get the sense that this war, as you call it, could be won? I think it ebbed and flowed. I had a, a couple of phases of optimism after Rio in 1992. I thought that things would move much faster than they ended up moving. Then again, I had another phase of very qualified optimism after the Kyoto Protocol in 1997 because the energy incumbency did not expect the people who were trying hard on climate change to secure a protocol that would be capable of sending a signal. And of course, we did. It was far from perfect, but that was essentially the signal, I think, that materially contributed to the rise of renewables this century with agreement of the Kyoto Protocol. But then, of course, Copenhagen was a huge setback in 2009. Yeah. So, you know, I went through a few years of being pretty depressed 
about things. But over the last few years, things have definitely turned around. And I think uh, we're in a phase that we've never seen before. We're in with a chance. I call my, my latest book, The Winning of the Carbon War, meaning I think we have begun a process that might end up with us winning. I certainly don't mean to in, to infer that we are guaranteed to win. And I think really, as I look back on it, with the benefit of hindsight, I didn't see this you know, right at that time. But I think around the spring of 2013, April, May 2013, if you look at the diaries, and of course, I keep a diary and a log on my website, that's when a really regular drip of crikey stories started hitting the press. And now, of course, we read things on an almost daily basis that we wouldn't have believed possible a few years ago. And I think the the energy transition is definitely underway. There are big questions as to how fast it can proceed. Will it proceed fast enough to save us from some of the most awful possibilities of an enhanced greenhouse effect? But, you know, it's very clear, not least in the reactions of some of the big energy incumbency companies, thinking of E.ON and GDF Suez, who have done 180 degree turns in their business models and embraced some notion of a clean energy future powered by renewables, storage and smart grid. And so we're living in very exciting times, redolent with opportunity but also depressingly seeing the more diehard quarters of the energy incumbency showing every every sign of digging in and going down with a ship and trying to take us with them. Yeah, I mean, there's no question that's a time of amazing ferment in the industry. So you participated in many an energy and climate conference meetings in Parliament, the United Nations, other high-level dialogues all over the world. And you have a better idea than most people of the political and economic dimensions of the climate challenge around the world. Do you think the upcoming COP21 conference will be a success? And how would we measure that? Yeah, I, th- I think it's very difficult to be quantitative about this. I think it will, on the very strong balance of probabilities, as I read things at the moment, be describable as a success. Now, what will that look like? Will it look like a piece of paper, a piece in our time that guarantees us staying below two degrees Celsius or staying on track for something even less than that 1.5 degrees Celsius, if that's what we end up having to do? No, we won't have that out of Paris, but it will be about a direction of travel. It will be about sending a signal that is positive, that reinforces what's already underway and amplifies it, accelerates it. That is what I think we're going to see. And there'll still be many open questions, but what I don't expect to see is what we saw in Copenhagen, which was a lot of optimistic people going into the summit and then an absolute pig's ear of a result Mm -hmm. which really thrilled the coal industry at the time who thought they had a a gold-plated guaranteed future to dig up every lump of coal on the planet and burn it. I don't think we're going to see anything like that in Paris, he said, with fingers crossed. Right. (laughs) Fair enough. Uh, All the oil majors used to invest in renewable energy. When I was in the solar business 10 years ago, BP made some of the nicest solar panels on the market. Shell was one of the biggest solar panel manufacturers in the world. 
Chevron and Total have both invested in renewable energy solutions all around the world, and even ExxonMobil used to invest in biofuels, but all of them have pulled back from renewables in recent years. Why do you think that happened? I mean, why have they not embraced the energy sources of the future, especially since they were doing it already, and especially now that they're becoming truly competitive with fossil fuels, and fossil fuels face these unprecedented existential threats? What happened? Well, I mean, the first thing to say is to be fair to them, some of these companies haven't pulled back as badly as others. I mean, Total are well invested in solar and they don't talk an adequate game, but they talk a much better game than ExxonMobil, BP and Shell. And the real foot draggers now, of which BP and Shell are the most disappointing, because as you say, you know... They used to talk and play a pretty good game. I don't think we would have had a Kyoto Protocol if we hadn't had BP not just actively involved in the embryonic solar industry, but saying all the right things about energy transition back in 1997. So they've gone backwards. ExxonMobil, to be fair to them, has stayed in the same depressing place it's always been. And I think what we're looking at here, and this is the way I describe it in my book, is it's a problem of human culture. You know, the neuroscientists tell us a lot about how these things happen. You have a belief system. It's a belief system that is hugely insulated by corporate information shields. It holds that grown-ups do not and cannot get their energy really materially any other way than oil and gas. They have all ganged up now and thrown coal under the bus, which is very important. And, you know, that's a big step forward. But they're still saying, we can burn all our oil, all our gas, and it'll be fine. Or we have no choice anyway. And this is depressing. And I, I know a lot of these people because, of course, I used to be one of them in my first career as a, I was an earth scientist, pretty much a creature of the oil and gas industry. I, I know quite a few of the senior players. And their culture allows them to get their heads around an argument that says, well, this really isn't our problem. It's the problem of governments. And if governments would just but get their acts together, we would, of course, compete on a level playing field and we would go for green energy. And they say that in front of their peers. They persuade themselves that that's their individual and collective belief system. Uh, of course, they ignore the fact that their public relations departments are madly plotting and enacting shady things that we only know that the surface manifestations of, mm -hmm. as I get told by people in the PR industry, for example, and guilt-stricken people within the energy incumbency itself, yeah. who trust me not to dob their names in it. So we are fighting a problem of human culture. And the good thing, I think, about all this is that human cultures change. They collapse. And I, I was talking to a very senior oil industry executive the other day, a lady who shall be nameless or a company that shall be nameless. But she said, words to the effect on paraphrasing, but fairly and accurately, she said, look, you know, imagine what it feels like when I'm sitting talking to my kids at the table. A couple of years ago, I could say that we were getting fuels out of the ground, oil and gas, that were fueling economic growth and civilization and everything that good that, that we stand for. All that's evaporated within just a couple of years. We now have college kids all over the world pressuring their campus 
governors to get investments out of fossil fuels. We have doctors divesting, making us no better than the tobacco industry, the British Medical Association. We have the Pope, for heaven's sake, saying to the world's billion Catholics, words to the effect that, get on plan with the low-carbon future or start worrying about your souls, people. Right. And how do you think that makes me feel? <sighs> and so my answer, of course, was <laughs> not very good. Yeah, tough good place luck. to be in. Yeah. Uh, and that people say the divestment movement isn't very powerful. It's not affecting much money compared to the amount of money in equities. No, I think it's about politics. It's about, uh, I think, an existential threat to a malign human culture that can be deconstructed in very short order. Uh, and we'll have people like this lady saying to her boss, you know what? You solarize every piece of our infrastructure and get serious about this future or I'm out of here and I'm going to spill secrets in so doing. Yeah. You know, I think that's what's coming, Chris, you know, in my optimistic moments. Wow. What a fascinating little view of what must go on in the minds of those folks. And I think it's a really interesting point that this is, in fact, a cultural question that goes on within the oil and gas industry and probably the coal industry as well. So the carbon tracker reports gained a lot of traction very quickly with their warnings about fossil fuel assets being stranded by climate policy, and that was a risk that surely deserved more attention than it had previously gotten, especially within public pension funds. But now it seems that macroeconomic forces this year have crushed the prices of all commodities globally, and they may be making fossil fuel reserves uneconomic to produce, rather than climate policy making them sort of formally unburnable. And last year, I speculated that at some point in the future, we'll probably likely see oil prices spike up back to levels that kill demand as they did in 2008, which is actually a risk that I think is increasing now because oil prices have been low enough to slash an estimated $200 billion globally from investments in future oil and gas production. So what are your thoughts about the various forces that might render fossil fuel reserves unburnable, unproducible, or unaffordable in the years ahead? Yeah, this is an area where it's difficult for people like me not to engage in schadenfreude. Uh, I mean, one doesn't have to talk to the incumbency any longer about climate change to really unsettle them about the clear and present danger that, that you know the low and zero carbon future presents to their business models. And it's because of the reasons you say that these low oil prices, a lot of what they're out there doing is way below water. They will have to wait for much higher prices before they even even get their costs back, much less make a profit. And these people all know this. The, the folk drilling up in the Arctic like Shell, the people contemplating drilling the, the subsalt in Brazil and in the shale as well in America. They're not profitable, and they won't be profitable unless the prices go up. And more and more investors are realizing this. More and more people are beginning to show signs of concern, not yet panic, but panic is conceivable at some point, given the, the low oil prices. And then people say, okay, well, low oil prices are bad for renewables as well, aren't they? To which my response is, <laughs> nothing like as bad as they are for the incumbency. Yeah, I'm not losing sleep over that. I don't know renewable energy executives who are losing sleep over it. And then 
The flip side, obviously, if you're not investing in expiration at some point down the track where there's such a narrow margin between supply and demand mismatch, it's quite easy. It's very, very unpopular to say this, and not many people are. You and I are, are two who do, but you know, it's really easy to see uh, a quick reversion to a supply crunch if things like the banks pulling the plug on all the junk debt that's exposed in the shale, for example, in the United States, right. that becomes a, a clear and present danger. You know, it can flip around very quickly. And then what happens? You have exactly the same problem. The prices are too high compared to the alternatives in solar, wind, storage, and the other parts of the clean energy family that are beginning to show signs of doing well. So it's possible to weave a narrative arc for people who, for whatever reason, don't accept climate change, don't believe in climate change, and talk to them for hours about why all this is inevitable. It's just a question of timing anyway, just based on the economics of, of supply and demand. And well, people like us have done this. In the book, I describe a trip to Saudi Arabia where I had a really interesting time talking to folk who, you know, I'd been forewarned, did not want to be hearing about climate change. But, you know, at the end of the day, you're talking to them about the same end result. Yeah, yeah. So maybe in some fashion, it doesn't really matter whether fossil fuel reserves are stranded via being unburnable or unproducible or unaffordable. Maybe those different drivers sort of change places at different times. But either way, there doesn't seem to be any escape for the fossil fuel industry. That's what I believe. I'm not comfortable uh, avoiding the climate discussion. I think there are issues there that we have to think through. We have to figure out a way of collectively being more rational than we are. There's no excuse when the neuroscientists tell us so much about how our brains are operating individually and collectively. Yeah. And so I'm not in the camp that says never talk about climate change because the Republicans don't want to hear about it, or the Saudis, whatever. I think we have to because it's so much of a clear and present danger. And ultimately, once the energy transition is well underway and nobody is querying it any longer, there will be questions about whether you know we're going fast enough, hard enough, whether two degrees as a ceiling to global warming is adequate and you know whether we have to try and figure out ways of of keeping that thermostat lower than two degrees difficult as that that looks like being from where we're standing at the moment yeah you know in recent years most of the big banks have forecast that renewables especially solar will be the cheapest form of new power generation in much of the world by 2020 if that's the case could the world achieve the needed reduction in carbon emissions through market forces alone without effective carbon policies? Well, it's possible, but not likely. And I think the name of the game is mutual reinforcement. So, for example, the last session of climate negotiations, I went to the executive secretary, Cristiano Figueres, was warning negotiators, things are moving so fast in the markets that you know you guys are in danger of, yeah. of getting egg on your faces, and you better play catch-up. And I think governments will collectively. Of course, there'll be exceptions, but 
the dynamic that we have now between the United States and China is is very encouraging in this regard. So I don't think it will be an either-or. But that said, as I talk to people who are fresh to all these ideas and they need persuading or they need one document, you know, you have to you have to pull one thing down off the shelf to Yeah, persuade. they need their FAQ. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I keep coming back to a UBS report from last year with a big team of analysts who looked at solar, storage, and electric vehicles in great detail. You will know this one. And, of course, what they find is that right across the OECD, by 2020, five years from now, we'll be able to have solar roofs, electric vehicles in the yard, big banks of batteries in the home, and with reasonable assumptions about how cost-down trajectories continue, actual cost-down in solar and, you know, projected for the most part in storage, that package, that trio of technologies, which would take you off-grid, zero emissions, get you about to the extent that you need in your neighborhood, in your region, you'd be able to do that with a payback of six to eight years and, crucially, a rate of return, a simple rate of return every year of 7%. Hmm. And they say this is going to change the face of the energy industry in ways that most people can't even imagine, much less predict. So I'm in that camp. You know, I'm more than cautiously optimistic that that this phenomenon can go much faster than most people, including many supposed experts, actually can comprehend. Yeah. Well, I completely agree on that. I think First of all, the history of the energy agency forecasts has shown that they've radically underestimated the speed for decades already, and it only seems to be accelerating now. I think we're still waiting for those forecasters to catch up. Yeah. So speaking of that, the UK's energy transition now seems to be stalling out after achieving considerable success. I mean, its renewable energy generation reached a record 22% in the first quarter of 2015, and solar farms have been growing rapidly, yet the government now seems to be backpedaling on the transition. It's signaled its intent to slash the fit and rock incentives. It's pushing forward with tenders for shale gas exploration over the objections of residents in the prospective areas, and it's greenlighted the new Hinkley Point nuclear plant under a contract that will cost twice as much as wholesale power does today. Why is this happening in the UK, and how will it affect consumer electricity costs? Again, I come back to the the cultural issue. It's a relatively small number of men of a certain age and a certain political predisposition who are who are driving this, and they are tragically and catastrophically wrong. Yeah. And they're going to realise that on their watch in this five years. One wonders what advice they're getting about the shale narrative in America, whether they know that the drillers in America collectively have clocked up nearly a trillion dollars of debt, most of it junk, and yeah. that is how you get the cheap gas in America that they lust after in Britain. And if they want to import that route to bankruptcy into Britain, then good luck to them. And they are not going to succeed. And that's just the economics. When you look at the the geography of a productive shale play in the United States and imagine that in their hinterland, in their conservative voting hinterland, in the beautiful British countryside on this cramped and tiny island, honestly, I just think it's breathtaking. My prediction is they won't 
bring in a single productive play in their efforts. The opposition of the British people, Conservative, Liberal and Labour, will be so great that they won't be able to get away with it, never mind about the economics. But if the train comes off the tracks in the States in the short term, as people like me suspect it will, then the emperor is going to be left with no clothes. And as for nuclear, I say in my book, just once, you can only say this once, there are many days when it seems to me that life is stranger than art, that you couldn't invent stuff in the world of fiction and do so credibly on the scale that we see it happening in a weekly, monthly basis in the energy markets. And for those people listening who have not heard the drama of the carbon in the pressure vessel of the French nuclear reactor that the Brits intend to install in Hinkley Point, that is well worth following. That is a drama that is an existential threat to the entire French nuclear industry. French government knows this because they're cutting nuclear down madly and bringing in renewables. You're referring here to the Flamanville reactor. Exactly. The neck of the pressure vessel in the Flamanville reactor that's got way too much carbon in it and has now got to be ripped out and replaced if they can find the money to do it on a project that's years over schedule and billions of euros over budget already without this this existential disaster that they've uncovered recently. Just the very idea that they were able to put through this contract for Hinkley Point at twice the price of wholesale power, just absolutely, I just thought, as you would say, gobsmacking. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And a cultural problem, too many men of a certain age, not just in the energy industry and companies like EDF, but also in the ministries, you know, in Whitehall, Mm. who simply cannot get their heads around the fact that there are better ways to produce energy in society than those great big nuclear reactors that they have loved all their lives and that they view essentially as national status symbols that are capable of providing nations like Britain and France with nuclear weapons so that we can pretend to be on the same footing as the United States and Russia. Hmm. Well, that is a great segue to, I guess I probably don't even need to ask the next question, which was, can nuclear be a part of meeting our climate challenge? I think you're probably going to say no. Absolutely not. And the more money that gets poured down that hole, and the more time that gets wasted, and the more delusional propaganda that gets pushed out, the people without time find it easy to believe the harder it's going to be to bring in the, the real solutions, the modular solutions, the, the fast flash-to-bang, you know, install-time solutions that we know can get us to 100% renewable-powered economies and the rest of it. That's very much my view as well. I mean, renewables are just simply a lot faster to build. It takes a lot less capital up front to do it. There's just a lot less risk and ultimately is cheaper. So, yeah. I think we're on the same page there. Indeed. So for years, all of the major agencies from the IEA to the World Bank have 
projected that carbon capture and sequestration will be a big part of our response to climate change. And that those assumptions underlie their forecasts for fossil fuel consumption to remain at or near current levels for decades to come. Do you think this is a reasonable or likely expectation? No, and of course, to be fair, neither do many of them anymore. Really? (laughs) Yeah, I think the number of people who are prepared to stand up with a straight face and argue that carbon capture and storage is the future is declining. Uh, That's my experience. And, you know, just looking at the body language of the people who do, you can see that they're pushing a mantra that, that doesn't hold water. They've been pushing this for so long now, there should be hundreds if not thousands of these things deployed at industrial scale if this ever was going to be the universal panacea to keep burning fossil fuels that they you know, have long said it would be. I think we have, what, eight functional projects in, uh, of any scale in the world right now? That sounds about right, yeah. Yeah, and the economics of those looks appalling, even when you use the carbon dioxide, as they all do, to enhance oil recovery, because that gives them a good way of edging up the economics. But, you know, I think this is a dead horse that uh, it gets flogged by people who are lost in in their their belief system and, you know, accept climate change and so have to have something to say like this. But increasingly their hearts know that it can't deliver. It's another one of these delusional detours that uh, get put in front of us. And my theory here is mostly pushed by men, men of a certain age, close to retirement, coming back to this cultural theme, who can't get their heads around the decentralized alternative internet-based vision that fire up so many of the young people you see employed in the green energy industries in companies like my own at Solar Century. And so those folk are going to find it, always find it very difficult to change their their mindset. And we have to be buoyed by the fact that so many of them are so close to retirement and, and the companies that uh, and institutions that tend to employ them, in many cases so close to bankruptcy, looking at the utilities, for example, where there always used to be strong, really strong arguments for carbon capture and sequestration. It's going to evaporate in, in the not-too-distant future. Well, I've been waiting for one of these major reports to come out and just formally give up on the idea. But yeah. that's, I think, going to be very difficult for them to do because once you take that pillar out of their model, all of a sudden there's this giant gaping hole that now has to be filled. And I don't think they really know how that can be done. Yeah, that's right. You and I have both championed the peak oil issue for a long time. We've both written books about it. But the notion that oil production will peak and then decline has probably never been more out of fashion in recent memory than it is now, with all producers pumping as much as they can and Brent trading around $45 a barrel. What are your thoughts at this point about the prospect of a global oil peak? Well, as we all know, there is going to be a global oil peak. (laughs) It's just a question of debate over the timing. Yeah. And... As we also know, there are plenty of people who are prepared in the incumbency hand on heart to say that even that is at issue, that somehow, you know, you've heard all the mantras as much as I have. We don't believe in peak oil at BP, the chief economist says. Which sounds very much, as you were saying, like a declaration of belief. Yes, a belief in what? That oil production, come what may, can keep on rising? 
forever. We yeah. don't believe in big God. You know, it's just, and so these people get away with murder, you know, uh, metaphorically speaking. I, I was on a panel with Tony Haywood, I describe this in the book, where he actually said gas supply is endless and oil supply is to all intents and purposes endless. So former chief executive of BP, and I said to him, this was after the debate because there were so many other things to focus on in the debate. I decided not to argue the toss on this one, but afterwards I knew him as a graduate student. I said, Tony, you can't say that. You're, you're a PhD geoscientist. You, were, <laughs> you know better. You, you know, what are you thinking about? And he said, oh, Jeremy, you know I'm only speaking figuratively. No, hmm. actually. I don't think so. I think for a moment there, we saw into the black heart of the culture that we're dealing with, where people like him feel able and comfortable in front of their peers. This was the Financial Times Global Energy Summit. So a lot of people in suits, desperate to believe everything he told them. Hmm. And, you know, this is what we're dealing with. So there will be peak oil. And I think in a world where, as you well know, conventional crude peaked in 2005, has been wobbling around and on the way down, not steeply yet, but on the way down. And, you know, what's been propping up production, a good slug of it is shale oil and, and tar sands. And if you take away those from the production equation, as Mark Lewis and others have pointed out, you know, the, this thing can can start going downwards very quickly. And then if you get some of the other things that even the IA have talked about, warned about, like the, the scope for the conventional crude depletion to accelerate over time, then, you, you know, you could very easily have a production-driven peak in the not-too-distant future. That said, there's huge pressure on demand as well, not just with the Chinese economy, but the speed with which oil is being displaced by, by storage technologies of, of different types and the scope for fast deployment of electric vehicles to, to attack demand. So, you know, it's a complex equation, but whatever ultimately drives it, there's going to be a peak and my money is on sooner rather than later. And that, I think, is the fundamental difference between the unfashionable early peakists, as I call it, in one of my books, and the majority of folk who think it's going to be okay because it always has been okay so far. Thank you very much. Yeah. Well, I'd forecast several years ago that I thought probably late 2014 or 2015 was going to be sort of the breaking point where we seriously ran up against the ultimate peak. And we'll see how that pans out. Well, that's right. It's going to play out on our watch and people are going to have to be eating their hats. And I should be saying at this point, I expect it to be the energy incumbency and I do. But given the seriousness of this issue and the way it's been institutionally miscalculated, I actually hope it's going to be me and you who are going to be eating our hats. <laughs> Fair enough. I'd like to give you a chance to brag a little bit about the work that SolarAid does, because I think it's just such a cool project. I mean, you're deploying solar lanterns, I think mainly in Kenya, yeah? Kenya, Tanzania, Malawi, Zambia, and 
and Uganda. So you're lighting up a part of the world that desperately needs it, that's been relying for far too long on kerosene lanterns, which is really a very expensive solution to lighting for them, and also a health-impacting solution for them. So how do the economics work for that, and how's the campaign going? Yeah, the news is mixed. I mean, the good news is that we've sold 1.7 million solar lights in these five countries, most in two of them, mostly in three-year period, which makes us the biggest retailer of solar lighting in, our, in the whole of Africa. Wow. And all profits once eventually made to be recycled back into accelerating the solar lighting revolution even faster. So that's wonderful work. We're very happy about this. Solar Century gives 5% of its profits to this process every year. And, you know, we leverage in funds from philanthropists and governments, including USAID and, and DFID here in the UK. And it's a great microcosm because what we're doing is, in essence, at the bottom end of the oil value chain, we're getting rid of one whole use of oil in lighting. Uh, we're doing it easily because, you, you know, the average household saves $70 a year just in avoided kerosene costs. And what's doing that is the cost down in three things, the three components of the little solar lanterns, the solar cells, the batteries, and the LEDs, the lighting, the energy efficiency technology. So, you know, it's a microcosm of what's coming right across the fossil fuel value chain, and that's why I love it so much. What's the simple payback on a lantern like that for your typical resident of Kenya or Tanzania? It's measured in weeks. Wow. This is the thing. So the business, so far, we've had no financial innovation. We, we haven't done microcredit. We haven't done scratch cards or pay-as-you-go or all the things, that the payment services that can be done, could be done with existing technology and at scale. So it's it's really cool, and people save money immediately. We know what they spend it on. They spend it on school books, on medicines, on food, and, of course, on getting up the energy chain. So many of them buy entry-level lights at $10, soon to be $5, with D-Light's wonderful new A1 model halving the price of a system. Yeah. But that money can get deployed, does get deployed, back into buying bigger lighting systems which charge mobile phones and allow people to have little businesses in charging a little bit by way of fees for people to pump up their mobile phone and you know you, you can see development in microcosm here and displacement of fossil fuels entirely in microcosm we do have problems at the moment with cash flow with the organization because you know we've been selling so fast and hard and literally catalyzing markets for the first time in Kenya and Tanzania. So now we have proper competition, and you know, that's a different ball game. Yeah, yeah. We've got to figure out how to keep the cash propped up going forward, but I'm optimistic we're going to be able to do that. Wow. It's just, I think, a fascinating angle of energy transition that probably most people in, in the U.S. certainly don't even know anything about this thing that's happening in, in the third world. But what a terrific project. It must be really exciting for people who live there to have that extra cash in their pockets now and not have to deal with the stink and the health effects of kerosene. Not to mention the greenhouse gas emissions. I right. mean, one of these little kerosene lanterns, it seems incredible to believe, but 
over its lifetime, one of these little monsters puts up a ton of carbon dioxide wow. into the atmosphere. That's a real hit. Yeah. Well, Jeremy, I'm so pleased that you could join us on the program here. I'm such a big fan of your work and really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. I'm grateful for the opportunity so to do, Chris. That was Dr. Jeremy Leggett, founder of Solar Century and Solar Aid, chair of Carbon Tracker, and the author of four books on energy transition, with a new book, The Winning of the Carbon War, now downloadable for free from his website, and we'll link to that in the show notes. I highly recommend people interested in energy transition to read that book. It's just a fascinating tale from a truly front row seat of the way that dialogues have been going on in the energy world and in the legislative world about energy transition, what people are really thinking, the character of the dialogue, all that color and detail will really give you a very different view of what's actually happening in the world of energy transition than you would get from just perhaps reading the news or listening to official statements. Something that really popped out of that interview for me was how people really think versus what they're actually saying in public. And you're never going to come across a more insightful storyteller of this question than Jeremy is. So he's also one of the truly great minds, I think, globally in, in energy. He really understands the whole big picture from resources to production to capital to trends to legislation to the cultural dynamics. And as he often pointed out, sort of the neurochemical aspects of this question. It's just such a pleasure to talk to him. And I'm sure we'll have him back on the show. Keep smiling through, just like you always do, till the blue skies drive the dark clouds far away. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item one, renewables continue to make headlines for getting cheaper and cheaper. Two weeks ago, we mentioned a new report from Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, which found that utility-scale solar projects in the U.S. are regularly securing power purchase agreements for $0.05 cents per kilowatt hour or less. And a news story from New Mexico reports that 140 megawatts of new utility-scale solar there will be sold under a PPA for a mere $0.3.5 cents per kilowatt hour. Now, a new analysis from Bloomberg New Energy Finance found that wind power is now the cheapest electricity to produce in both Germany and the U.K., even without government subsidies. And in the U.S., the increase in wind and solar have begun to cut into the use of conventional coal and gas power plants, forcing the capacity factor of gas plants down from 70% to 62% year-over-year from 2014 to 2015. And because the conventional plants are running less often, their cost of power generation is going up, while the cost of wind and solar continues to fall. Item 2. In a fascinating interview with Energy Post, which we'll link to in the show notes, Steve Holliday, the CEO of National Grid, which is the company that operates gas and power transmission networks in the UK and in the northeastern US, turned conventional wisdom on its head, calling the idea of using large centralized power stations to meet baseload demand outdated. Quote, from a consumer's point of view, the solar on the rooftop is going to be the baseload, he said, predicting that centralized power stations will be increasingly used to provide peak demand and that energy markets are, quote, clearly moving toward much more distributed production and toward microgrids. Now, this will not be a surprise to close observers of energy transition or to those who read my 2012 article, Why Baseload Power is Doomed, which we referenced in episode one. 
Because large, old, centralized nuclear and coal power plants are inflexible, German engineers have called them incompatible with a grid increasingly dominated by renewables. What Holiday is saying is that demand will begin to follow generation, not the other way around, and that large centralized plants will be called on mainly to meet short-term peak loads, and that those plants will have to be gas plants, or so-called small modular nuclear reactors, which don't exist yet commercially, or perhaps some variety of next-generation coal plant that can ramp up and down quickly. Holiday explains, this industry is going through a tremendous transformation. We used to have a pretty good idea of what future needs would be. We would build assets that would last decades and that would be sure to cover those needs. That world has ended. Our strategy is now centered around agility and flexibility based on our inability to predict or prescribe what our customers are going to want." End quote. Which brings us to item three. It's been a rough couple of weeks for big centralized coal and nuclear plants in the U.S. Entergy, a utility, announced that it would be closing the last operating nuclear plant in Massachusetts, the Pilgrim plant, because it can't compete against plants fired by cheaper natural gas. Energy also announced that it was considering the closure of its Fitzpatrick nuclear plant in New York. According to UBS, a bank, Fitzpatrick will lose $29 million in 2015 and $40 million in 2016, while the Pilgrim plant loses $50 million in 2015 and $40 million in 2016. In a bid to keep its plants operating, Energy is now appealing to New York Governor Cuomo to award special tax breaks and state funding for nuclear plants, rewarding them for producing reliable, low-carbon, dispatchable power. Entergy has also sued over the Cuomo administration's decision to help keep open a coal-burning power plant in Dunkirk by switching it to natural gas, arguing that the state was interfering in the market. Three more coal-fired plants in New York are in danger of closure or being subsidized by ratepayers to maintain the reliability of the state's electrical grid. And down in Tennessee, what should have been a victorious moment for nuclear power boosters, the completion of the Watts Bar 2 plant, has instead produced a recitation of the laundry list of failures the American nuclear industry has had in recent years. Watts Bar 2 took 42 years to complete and wound up costing 16 times its original budget at over $6 billion. And for all of that effort and expense, Tennessee now has a new plant built on an outdated, decades-old design, which lacks some of the safeguards that were put into place after the Fukushima disaster. And the leadership of the Tennessee Valley Authority, which constructed the plant, are indeed, quote, men of a certain age, as Jeremy Leggett put it, who remain committed to nuclear power despite increasingly clear market signals that renewables efficiency and natural gas will be much cheaper than nuclear in the decades to come. And that's a good segue to item four. In July, natural gas became the number one source of power generation in the U.S. for the second time this year, according to statistics compiled by the Energy Information Administration. Coal's share of U.S. power generation has fallen from 51% in 2003 to just 37% this year, while natural gas's share has risen from 17% to 31%. And somewhat counterintuitively, a new study published by the National Bureau of Economic Research found that a switch from coal to natural gas actually happens more often in traditional regulated markets than in deregulated or restructured markets, because the former have more stable market positions and can take more innovation risk than generators in more competitive markets. So what can we learn from this week's stories? One, we know that those who are holding on to older assets and business models within the power sector are not going to give up without a fight. Two, we can see that where you stand depends on where you sit. One man's just and necessary subsidy is another man's market interference. And even the word baseload is loaded with political meanings. And three, 
deregulation and consumer choice isn't necessarily the fastest path toward grid power transition. And finally, a note to our listeners. We've been getting some excellent comments and suggestions from listeners via the comment form on our website. Thanks very much to all of you who have sent them in. We don't publish them on the site, but I do read them, every one of them, and respond to them when I can. I have already added some topics suggested by listeners to my list for future episodes. So please keep them coming, and if you don't get a personal response or see your comment published on the site, don't be discouraged. We're hearing you and doing our best to keep up with you. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.